My name is Mariko Kawano. I'm a professor of international law of Waseda University School of Law, Tokyo. Today, I'm going to talk some salient features of the contemporary international disputes in the presence of International Court of Justice. The International Court of Justice, hereafter referred to as the court, is a principal judicial organ of the United Nations pursuant to Articles 7 and 92 of the UN Charter. As a judicial organ, the court enjoys an independent status and moreover plays an authoritative role in interpretation and application of international law. The court has other features in the UN system. It is necessary to have a look at some other provisions of the Charter in order to see these features. In accordance with Article 2, Paragraph 3, members of the UN are under the obligation to settle their international disputes by peaceful means. Article 33 provides for the various means for the peaceful settlement, peaceful settlement of international disputes and more importantly, guarantees the members to enjoy the freedom of choice of the peaceful means for their dispute. Another important provision for the status of the court in the UN system is Article 93. Article 93, paragraph 1, provides that all members of the United Nations are ipso facto parties to the Statute of the International Court of Justice. Two features of the court can be re reflected in these provisions. First, the court is expected to play a role as one of the principal organs of the UN for the maintenance of international peace and security. The fact that the court is enumerated as one of the peaceful means in Article 33 signifies the second feature. The court is one of the peaceful means to be proposed to the parties or part, part to the party or parties of a dispute which enjoy the freedom of choice for the settlement of its or their dispute. From this viewpoint, the court should be chosen by the party or parties in order to exercise its competence as a judicial institution. When we see the history of the court for more than 60 years, we notice that the number of the cases has sharply increased for these 20 years. In particular, the number of the cases unilaterally submitted to the court has, increasing, has increased significantly. It might be suggested that the increase of the cases before the court signifies the increasing trust and confidence in the court. Moreover, it might also signify the increasing support of states for the international judicial procedures, which is entitled to render decisions with binding effects. The phenomenon of the increase of the cases unilaterally submitted to the court has been realized by the increase of the means of the expression by states 
of the prior consent to the compulsory jurisdiction of the court. In principle, the prior consent to the compulsory jurisdiction of the court can be exp exp expressed either by a declaration recognizing the compulsory jurisdiction of the court in accordance with Article 36, Paragraph 2 of the Statute, or by a provision of a convention which allows every contracting party to bring a dispute to the court. The more the number of the cases referred to the court increases, the more clearly they, they, these cases reflect the features of international disputes in the present international community. The increase of the cases to be brought to the court does not always bring positive effects to the court in the light of its sound function. For example, in some cases, a state decides to make a declaration recognizing the compulsory jurisdiction of the court under Article 36, Paragraph 2, in order to refer a specific dispute to the court against a specific state or states that have already made the declaration for that purpose. As the court admitted in the right of passage over Indian Territory case, a state which makes a declaration pursuant to Article 36, Paragraph 2 is under the obligation to be subject to the com compulsory jurisdiction of the court immediately after the deposit of its declaration. Although it obtains the right to refer a dispute to the court immediately after its deposit. Is it really appropriate, in the light of the sound administration of justice, that a state is entitled to make such a declaration in order to bring a specific dispute against a specific state? Another example can be seen in the formulation of the subject of the dispute to be referred to the court. According to Article 40 of the Statute and Article 38 of the Rules of, the, of Court, it is the applicant that is under the obligation to indicate the subject and the party of the case in its application. In most cases, it is the obligation of the applicant to specify the subject of and the party to the dispute, which the applicant refers to the court. However, in some cases, the applicant takes full advantage of such an obligation in the choice and the formulation of the subject and the party in order to found the jurisdiction of the court or to avoid the objections regarding admissibility of the application. In those cases, the applicant artificially or intentionally formulates the subject of the dispute or the refers only a part of the whole dispute. The subject indicated in the application constitute the basis for the dispute before the court. And the expectation of the respondent in the preparation for its response to the argument of the applicant.
it might be questioned to what extent the right of the applicant to formulate the subject or to choose the party should be admitted. In the present system of the court, the jurisdiction is based upon the consent of states in accordance with Article 36 of the statute. Moreover, it is up to respective state to decide whether it expresses its prior consent to the compulsory jurisdiction of the court or whether it withdraws its consent. This system based on the consent of respective sovereign state is very fragile. The court should respect the will and intention of sovereign state to a certain extent in order to be chosen by the party or parties to the international disputes and to encourage states to express the prior consent on the one hand. However, on the other hand, it should exercise proprio motu its competence to maintain the administ administration of justice when it considers appropriate or necessary. For the court, the administration of justice contains various elements, such as the equality of the parties, the effectiveness of its decisions, the role as the guardian of law, or the role as the principal judicial organ in the UN system. The judicial function of the court is undertaken in the tripartite operation among the applicant, the respondent, and the court. In the present lecture, I would like to discuss the role of the court in the present international community. International disputes in the present international community have the following three features. First, a dispute may have long historical backgrounds. Second, the circumstances of a dispute may change so quickly and substantially. And finally, a dispute contains various legal issues and the legal rules to be applied are very different in response to the respective issues. The court is expected to play a role as the principal judicial organ of the UN in the process of the peaceful settlement of the contemporary international disputes with these features. As I have already said, the essence of the dispute referred to the court is expressed in the form of the subject of that dispute. Before I start the examination of the precedence of the court, it might be necessary to explain what the dispute to be referred to the court is. As the court is a judicial organ, the dispute to be referred to it is required to be legal. In the Mamromatis Palestine concessions case, the Permanent Court of International Justice defined a legal dispute as follows. I quote, a legal dispute means a disagreement on a point of law or fact, a conflict of legal view, 
or interest between two parties. End of quote. The court has referred to such a definition as an established jurisprudence in its decisions. It should also be noted that in a unilaterally referred case, the court has required, required the applicant to establish that the subject indicated in its application appropriately reflect the legal dispute at the time of the filing of the application. In a case which has long historical backgrounds, the court is required to decide whether the subject formulated by the applicant appropriately reflects the essence of the legal dispute as exists between the alleged parties at the time of the filing of the application. Let me take one example. In the certain property case, Liechtenstein filed its application against Germany pursuant to the European Convention for Peaceful Settlement of, this, of the Dispute, which came into force between Germany and Liechtenstein on 18th of February 1980. Article 27A of this convention provides for the jurisdiction ratione temporis andait. According to this provision, the court has the jurisdiction only to the disputes relating to facts or situations after the entry into force of this convention. That means that between Germany and Liechtenstein, only the dispute relating to the facts and situations after 1980 can be referred to the court unilaterally under this convention. In this case, Liechtenstein claimed for the restitution of a painting which was confiscated by former Czechoslovakia in 1948 under the so-called Menesh decrees and was rent by a museum in Bruno to a museum in Cologne for inclusion in an exhibition in 1991. Prince Hans Adam II filed a lawsuit in German courts in his personal capacity to have the painting sequestered and returned to him. After the, after the dismissal of this claim by German courts, he instituted proceedings before the European Court of Human Rights against Germany. But the European Court did not admit his arguments. Liechtenstein brought the dispute against Germany to the court after these proceedings in the name of Prince Hans Adam II. Because of the jurisdictional condition ratione temporis, the applicant tried to formulate the subject of the dispute against Germany as the lawfulness of the decisions of German courts in the 1990s regarding the restitution of the painting. Such a formulation was also required to justify the proceedings not against Slovakia, 
but against Germany. The applicant contended that it was not the settlement convention at the end of the Second World War and the Venice decrees, but the decisions of German courts that triggered the dispute, which it brought to the court. The court examined whether the dispute before it had its source or real cause in the, fact, in the facts or situation which occurred in the 1990s, or was the confiscation under the Venice decrees and the invocation by the German courts of the settlement convention at the end of the Second World War. The court concluded that although the decisions of the German courts triggered the dispute between the parties, the source or real cause of the dispute was to be found in the settlement convention at the end of the Second World War and the Venice decrees. In this case, the attempt of Liechtenstein to avoid the restriction of jurisdiction ratione temporis by the formulation of the subject of the dispute was not successful. Let me move on to the second feature of contemporary international dispute. That is the changing circumstances of an international dispute. Such changes occur every after the filing of the application by the applicant. It is true that international disputes have all the time contained changing circumstances. For example, in the nuclear test cases in the 1970s, the court examined the development of the circumstances after the filing of the application by Australia and New Zealand. In particular, the court noted the French president's statement followed by the defense minister's statement by which France expressed the intention to cease the conduct of, of atmospheric nuclear tests following the conclusion of the 1974 tests. The court admitted that the dispute referred to it should be considered to be the one at the time of the filing of the application. However, it cited its findings in the Northern Cameroon's case and took the view that it could take into account the development since the filing of the application in order to ensure the observance of the inherent limitation on the exercise of the judicial function of the court and to maintain its judicial character. This is a view of the court that in order to ensure the effectiveness of its findings in a concrete case, the court is competent to consider the changing circumstances of the case before it, taking into account the development after the filing of the application, if appropriate. In the light of much more quick changes of the recent international disputes, it should be questioned under what conditions 
the court is entitled to or is required to consider the development in the circumstances of the dispute after the filing of the application. It is true that the will of the applicant to refer the dispute to the court should be respected. However, at the same time, the court is competent and responsible for the effective settlement of a dispute as referred to it with a subject expressed in the application, and the respondent is entitled to discuss the impacts of the changes of the circumstances that make the dispute substantially and fundamentally transformed. In some of the recent cases, the respondent raised the objections because of the substantial changes of the dispute after the filing. Let me examine two cases. In the arrest warrant case, the dispute related to an arrest warrant issued against Mr. Erodia, who was, at the time of the issuance, the Foreign Minister of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, hereafter referred to as the DRC. On 17th of October 2000, the DRC filed the application to institute proceedings in respect of the dispute over the legality of the issuance of such an arrest warrant given his status as a Minister of Foreign Affairs and of its international circulation and requested an order for indication of the provisional measures. During a hearing devoted to consideration of the request for the, for the provisional measures, held from 20, 21st, 22nd, and 23rd November 2000, Mr. Yerodia became the Minister of Education as a result of a ministerial reshuffle of the cabinet. There was a further new formation of the government in the DRC in mid-April 2001. As a result, before the oral proceedings held from 15th to 20th October 2001, regarding the jurisdiction of the court, admissibility of the claims, and the merits, Mr. Yerodia was discharged of all governmental status and became a private individual. Three of the preliminary objections raised by Belgium were related to the changes in the ministerial status of Mr. Yerodia. First, it argued that there was no longer a legal dispute between the parties. Second, it contended the mootness of the case, saying that the declarations requested by the applicant were without object. Finally, Belgium maintained that the DRC materially transformed the substance of the claims and that to continue proceedings was contrary to legal security and the sound administration of justice. 
With regard to these arguments, the court firstly admitted that because of the later events, the court might make a decision not to proceed to judgment on the merits. However, the court did not uphold the argument of Belgium. As far as the first objection was concerned, it took the view that at the material time, there was a legal dispute between the parties concerning the international lawfulness of the arrest warrant of 11th of April 2000 and the consequences to be drawn if the warrant was unlawful. Thus, the court concluded that it had possessed jurisdiction to deal with the case at the time of, the, of Sejin and that it, it still had such jurisdiction. Regarding the second objection, the court took the view that as far as the DRC argued, the lawfulness of the arrest warrant and sought redress for the moral injury, and Belgium, for its part, contended non-violation of international law and disputed the submissions of the DRC, the application of the DRC was not without object and the case was not moot. Concerning the third objection, the court considered that the facts underlying the application did not change in a way that produced a substantial transformation in the dispute brought before it. Similar findings were rendered in the Lagrange case. In this case, Germany filed its application to institute the proceedings before the court on 2nd March 1999, which was only one day before the date of the scheduled execution of Mr. Walter Lagrange. Despite the order of the 3rd of March 1999 for the provisional measures indicating the suspension of the execution, Walter was executed immediately after that order. The United States discussed that the dispute had already been resolved by the United States apology and appropriate assurances of non-repetition. In particular, it pointed out that on 18th of February 2000, the U.S. State, State Department sent a diplomatic note to German embassy in which the U.S. made a report of the investigation and offered to answer any question Germany might have about it. In response to the arguments of the United States, Germany took the view that it did not consider the so-called assurance offered by the respondent as adequate. Germany also insisted that it did not claim for the monetary compensation and intended to get the assurance that German nationals 
would be provided with adequate consular assistance in the future. The court admitted that the United States had presented an apology to Germany for the breach of the obligation to give consular notification and the commitment of the United States to observe this obligation. The court considered that if the United States, notwithstanding its commitment to comply with the obligation to give consular notification, would fail in such an obligation, an apology would not suffice in cases where the individuals concerned have been subject to prolonged detention or convicted and sentenced to severe penalties. The court held that the appropriate remedy in such cases would be for the United States to allow the review and reconsideration of the conviction and sentence by taking account of the violation of the right set forth in the Convention by means of its own choosing. It is primarily up to the decision of the applicant whether it maintains the proceedings before the court in the changing circumstances since the filing of its application. When the applicant satisfied with the response of the respondent, it might express its intention to discontinue the proceedings. In fact, in the first case concerning the violation by the United States of Article 36 of the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations, Paraguay decided to discontinue the proceedings because of its satisfaction with the apology expressed by the United States. When the applicant wishes to continue the proceedings despite the changing circumstances, it is the court that has the competence to decide, considering those changes, whether the subject submitted in the application was substantially changed or the claims and remedies requested by the applicant retain actual effects in the settlement of the dispute between the parties. The changing circumstances of international disputes seems to accelerate the decision of the party or parties to request the indication of the provisional measures. In fact, the number of the cases in which the party or parties request the indication of provisional measures has increased since 1980s. Such increase has influenced to the role of the provisional measures indicated by the court. It should be noted that the more increase the number of the cases where continuing breach of international obligations are at issue, the more valuable such an order becomes from the viewpoint of the applicant. In particular, in some of the recent cases, the lives of people are in serious danger, 
and the court has to consider deliberately the urgent circumstances of the dispute before it. Under Article 41 of the statute, the court undertakes a rather large discretion in the examination of the request for this purpose. The court firstly confirms its jurisdiction prima facie to examine the, to examine the request. Then the circumstances of the case are considered in order to assess the urgency and the existence of the risk of irreparable damage. In some of the recent cases, the court examined another condition. That is the plausible link between the rights to be claimed in the principal claim and the provisional measures requested. For example, in the request of interpretation of the judgment of Prayer Behaya Temple case, the court examined this condition under a separate title, while the court had already referred to this condition in the previous cases without dealing with it as an explicitly separate condition. In accordance with the increase of the number of the cases where the order is requested, the court seems to have found it necessary to examine the requests in a more detailed way. In some cases, the jurisdictional bases are very vulnerable or the dispute is not sufficiently matured to be referred to the court. In some other cases, the provisional measures requested by a party or parties are equivalent to an interim judgment. Or the request is sometimes made for a certain political purpose. In those cases, the deliberate examination by the court is important to prevent the abuse use, abusive use of this procedure. The examination of the existence of the plausible link between the rights claimed in the principal proceedings and the provisional measures might also be effective for this purpose. It should further be pointed out that since the court admitted the binding effect of its order for indication of the provisional measures in the Lagrange case, the court has been required to examine the request for this purpose even more deliberately. It is necessary to prevent the abusive use, but at the same time, it might be suggested that this procedure is expected to play even more important role in the present international community. For example, there are some cases where the subject of the dispute is relating to the use of force or to the right of private individuals. In those cases, the provisional measures may play an important role to prevent the further injuries suffered by the people concerned and aggravation and expansion of the dispute between the parties. 
Therefore, the code sometimes indicates the provisional measures different from those requested by the party or parties. As far as the procedure or the request for the indication of provisional measures, the court should undertake its responsibility both to prevent the abuse of this procedure and to ensure its effective function and the administration of justice. Finally, I should discuss the last feature of international disputes in the, in the present international community and its effects to the cases before the court. It is a question regarding the impacts to the proceedings of the court of the complicated nature of the dispute. Many of contemporary international disputes contain numerous legal issues and the legal rules to be applied to each issue vary a lot. Moreover, it should also be noted that legal issues are profoundly related to the political context in some cases. When the applicant files a case before the court, it tries to formulate the subject of that dispute in an inter intentional way to justify the jurisdictional basis or to make, it, to make its claims admissible. It may also decide the subject in the light of applicable rules to their claims. In some other cases, the applicant may intentionally restrict the scope of that subject to be submitted to the court to only a part of the dispute as a whole. Such an intentional formulation of the subject by the applicant may sometimes be considered to be unexpected or not to reflect the real essence of the actual dispute between the parties from the viewpoint of the respondent. Then the court is required to consider in the light of administration of justice to what extent the will and intention of the applicant to refer the dispute to the court is respected. For example, in the Lockerbie case, in the Lockerbie cases, the applicant formulated the subject of the dispute as the lawfulness of the conduct of respondents pursuant to the obligations under the Montreal Convention, while the issue of the attack against the Panam aircraft was on debates in the Security Council. Or in the oil platforms case, the applicant restricted the claims only to the ones relating to the breach of several provisions in the Treaty of Amity, Economic Relations, and Consular Rights between the parties, although the direct cause of the dispute was the armed attack on the oil platforms by air forces of the United States. In the former case, the court dismissed the preliminary objections 
raised by the raised by the respondents. In the latter case, although the court took the view that it had the jurisdiction to entertain the dispute only with regard to the breach of the obligation pursuant to Article 10, Paragraph 1, it anyway decided to examine the merits as far as the breach of that provision was concerned. In these cases, it should also be noted that the court considered that it could have the jurisdiction to deal with the case only with regard to the legal aspect, although it admitted that the dispute as a whole was highly political. In the Lockerbie cases, the court sensibly took into account the resolutions adopted by the Security Council, both in its order for the indication of the provisional measures and the judgment on preliminary objections. In the contrast with such cases, there are cases where the court decided not to proceed to the merit. For example, the cases of armed activities, new application 2002, and Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, Georgia versus Russia. Recently, several disputes relating to use of force or armed activities have been brought to the court on the basis of compromissory clause of a convention, including the Genocide Convention, or Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. In all these cases, the applicant attempted to formulate the subject of the dispute as the one falling within the compromissory clause of that convention invoked. It might be possible to criticize such a use of the proceedings of the court. It is true that it may lead to the abuse of the procedure of the court. However, even admitting the prob problem of rather intentional, artificial, or partial formulation of the, of the subject, we should note that the court has actually rendered important decisions in those serious and grave cases that were referred to the court on the basis of those compromissory clauses. The court is willing to settle the legal dispute referred to it as a judicial organ on the one hand, and to play a role in the collective security system of the UN on the other. In these cases, the court has put the emphasis on the importance of its findings on legal questions in the process of the political dispute and paid due regards to the actions of the Security Council and other political institutions, if necessary or appropriate. It should also be noted that the decisions of the court regarding only a part of the dispute as a whole have, lead to, have led to the final settlement of the dispute as a whole between the parties. In particular, 
Some of the judgments of the court have contributed to the successful results, exerted positive influence to the circumstances of their bilateral or regional relationship. Such a phenomenon can be seen in developments of the judgment in the cases of Kashikiri Sedudu and Yanmayen. It should also be suggested that the, judgment of the judgments of the court regarding the territorial boundaries or maritime delimitation in Western Africa have contributed to the peace and security of that region. It is true that all the judgments of the court have not led to the final and successful settlement of the dispute between the parties as a whole. For example, the territorial dispute between Cambodia and Thailand has not been settled since the judgment of 1962, and the interpretation of this judgment was requested in 2011. It is also noted that the judgment in the Purao Ligitang and the Purao Shipadang case, the parties complied with the judgment of the court as such, but the dispute between them regarding the maritime delimitation in the vicinity of these two islands has not been settled yet. It is totally up to the willingness of the parties of, the dis of a dispute to what extent they take advantage of the proceedings or the decisions of the court. If they do not have the, have the willingness to cooperate in order to reach the final settlement by submitting their dispute to the court, the judicial settlement may not be effective. It should be noted that in some cases, the assistance of international institutions, in particular of the UN or regional institutions, has been significantly effective in the implementations of the judgments of the court. As the concluding remarks, the following three points should be suggested. First, the court is required to examine the existence of the consent from the parties regarding its jurisdiction and to ensure the equality of the parties before it. Such deliberate considerations are essential because of the fragile nature of, it, of its jurisdictional basis. Second, the court has tried to ensure the sound administration of justice in the process of the settlement of international disputes in the present international community. Such a role is important both as a role of an independent judicial organ and as one of the principal organs of the United Nations. The role of the court in the collective security system of the United Nations should be noted particularly in the increase of international disputes involving use of force or armed activities. Finally, the willingness of the parties to settle their dispute contribute 
significantly to the effective function of the court as a judicial organ. The, the increasing willingness of the member of the UN to resort to judicial settlement to pursue the settlement of their dispute is a good phenomenon. However, the frequent use of the judicial procedure may lead to the abuse. In those cases, it is the court which undertakes the responsibility to control and prevent those abusive uses by the party or parties. The function of the court as the guardian of justice is even more important in the present international community. Thank you very much.